As I was uh, thinking this past week about these two scripture lessons that you just heard, it struck me that the gospel lesson especially lent itself to a lot of moralizing. This episode comes as Jesus' life and ministry are nearing the climax. He has recently entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, that famous donkey that brought him in on Palm Sunday. And just prior to the words you heard today, he had been in the temple and he overturned the money changers' tables and rather aggressively challenged the leaders about turning the temple into a den of thieves. His rhetoric, in other words, is heating up, and his actions are more confrontational. That's why the passage begins with the self-righteous leaders asking him by what authority he says the things he does. It's as if they're saying to him, well, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to come in here and talk to us like this? Jesus winds up confronting them with a radical lesson about how the tax collectors and prostitutes are the more likely citizens of God's realm than those who say the right sets of pious words but fail to follow their meaning. Now, we're used to hearing something like that from this pulpit, but putting yourself in their shoes, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going in before I am, you know? And like I said, it's great for a lot of moralizing and thinking about all of those other people who don't get it. This taps into one of our favorite themes of Christ Church and a couple of our core values. We live and practice dynamic hospitality. We welcome and celebrate diversity. As a congregation, we've agreed that we'll try very hard to remove any impediments hindering people in their Godward journey. We'll receive all sincere seekers as best we can, we say. We think Jesus means it when he says things like tax collectors and prostitutes can find their way into God's realm ahead of some who would otherwise consider themselves first in line. We believe that following these words with actions will mean a wide assortment of people will find their way here with whom we'll partner. Yes, we're on Park Avenue and a block from Bloomingdale's, but our pretensions are less about our address and more about how we can share the mind of Christ, as Paul admonished his friends at Philippi. This is a hard lesson. It's not easy. We slip. We can be very lazy. On the other hand, we claim to mean what we say. And that's where the little parable comes in to twist its moralistic dagger. Are we more like the one who says he'll go to the vineyard but doesn't? Or the one who says he won't go but in the end finds his way there and does the job that needs to be done? Of course, you know, there's another option that Jesus doesn't mention. Say a third brother who says he'll go to work and then he does. That guy's missing. 
But Jesus didn't offer that alternative because of whom he was speaking with. The leaders that were challenging his authority understood their actual situation exactly backwards, and Jesus told them so in no uncertain terms. To say they didn't like his interpretation would be an understatement, as the rest of the story of Jesus makes clear. Now, the potential for moralizing doesn't stop there, though. Many sermons have been preached about, you know, child-rearing and character-building based on this parable's theme of saying one thing and doing another. From that angle, the logic is completely transparent. It doesn't really require a lot of interpretation. That's why Jesus' questioners know the right answer immediately. Which of the two sons did the will of the Father? That they did have the right answer set them up for the punchline about tax collectors and prostitutes. They didn't see that one coming. But whether or not parents effectively model responsible character traits, they will, to a person, insist their children do what they say. A kid who piously, even charmingly, says she'll do her chores or homework and doesn't do them will find herself in a worse light than the one who first said no and stamped out of the room but later thought better and accomplished the assigned task. I've certainly had that parental experience over the years, and I have experienced that as an employee and as a boss, and I recognize both sides of that dynamic in my own being. I'm guessing that's true for you as well. Of course, when moralizing, it's always more pleasant to have the focus on someone else. In this way, we rather like the dynamic of Jesus cleverly sticking it to his enemies. And it shouldn't be lost to us that the author of this gospel, a man named Matthew, is himself a tax collector and one of the twelve disciples. Much earlier in Jesus' public ministry, the text says that as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, that is Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I'm thinking that the author, Matthew, of this gospel, former tax collector, felt a sweet pleasure as he repeated this story, underlying how tax collectors and prostitutes get into the kingdom ahead of Jesus' self-righteous enemies. And Matthew wrote at a time when the gospel message was spreading like wildfire among the Gentile communities, those who didn't belong to this message at all. Now, the larger point we've already named. No one is excluded from God's kingdom of grace, and some who think they have a leg up in the matter may actually find they're a step behind, if not completely on the wrong path. The fact is, we are meant to be agents of God's hospitality, pure and simple. As followers of Jesus, if we don't do do that, we have missed the point. 
But there's something else that occurs to me here. For one thing, there is the matter of my identification as a so-called religious leader today. And for another thing, the members of this church and their identification with the so-called religious establishment, such as it is. From one vantage point, a proper reading puts us in the hot seat. We are the ones Jesus now confronts. And just who do I think I am in lifting up all these moralisms anyway? You know, I have sincerely always felt that my most competent sermons include me as a listener. That is, if I have the right perspective I'll occupy this pulpit with as much humility as I can muster, knowing that it's a dangerous business to be judging between the sheep and the goats out there when on an any given Sunday there could surely be a goat standing up here. But this begs another question. Is it possible that Jesus was preaching to himself as well? I know we suffer from a a rather two-dimensional view of him. We think of him as a great teacher abounding in wisdom, which is clear, of course, but we should remember that he was a man of flesh and blood, making his way in life like the rest of us, working out his own unique version of that inward spiritual journey. How did Paul say it? In fear and trembling, work out your faith. And the Gospels are filled with Examples of Jesus going off for long periods of time to be in prayer. And what else is he doing with all this praying and whatnot if not examining the furniture in the living room of his own psyche? I wonder if there isn't an interior resonance to the question he asks the religious authorities. Which of the two sons accomplishes the will of the father? You know, Jesus spoke of God as his Father all of the time. In this sense, don't you imagine that throughout his career he was doing his internal homework about what that meant? Those of us who have hung around church over the years or know some of the dramatic moments towards the end of his life will remember his famous prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before his betrayal, and it comes right after this, really, this sequence we heard today. The gospel reports he threw himself to the ground and said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from my lips. In other words, I'm thinking, don't send me out into the vineyard today, and if you do, I'm not sure I will go. Will Jesus do the will of his Father? Will his life up to this point flash out as an empty piety? Or will he actually embody what he had been teaching? Will he go the distance? As if to underscore his existential dilemma, another gospel writer reports that in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And I'm wondering to myself, if you have ever been in that position, 
in an anguished prayer, wanting to know, and then reflexively learning what it is that's required of you. I have been in that place. The great wonder is that Jesus does decide to go the distance all the way to the cross and beyond. His decision to go work in the vineyard as it is, is our model and our hope. Again, you heard Paul summarize this beautifully when he wrote, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It occurs to me that in order to grow into, if you will, the mind of Jesus, requires letting go of some old business in order to take on some new business. In the parable Jesus taught, in order for the Son to follow through on what the Father asked, required the son to change his mind. And I'm thinking that the whole spiritual journey is really, on from one point of view, a long journey of mind-changing, leaving lesser things behind and larger things, choosing larger things, better things. And what that suggests, friends, is that to be a part of a company of friends like this congregation is to come expecting that your mind will be changed. And I say it quite explicitly because church folks often have the opposite sensibility. They join a group of people who think exactly like them, so that their mind will never be changed. There's a paradox here, isn't there? Because on the one hand, we do find comfort by gathering together and learning together about God's great love for us. And at the same time, the call is to come with open hands, with humility, to receive the new thing we don't yet have or know. And lo and behold, in the process, our minds will be changed. It's a beautiful thing, but very scary for many. The call is for us to hold our hands open representative of open hearts to not counting ourselves better than others but to love as Jesus loved and then to act in the world on the basis of this astonishing grace that has been unleashed
take that into the world, friends.